Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox. For this episode, I spoke with Tiffany Morrison, a professor at the ARC Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies, associated with the James Cook University in Queensland, Australia. We talked about a critical case study that Tiffany has conducted from a polycentric perspective on the Great Barrier Reef governance system there. We also talked about her subsequent work on this system and her plans to conduct future case studies in other areas using a similar approach and perspective. As you'll hear, we had a lot of fun talking about these topics together, and I hope you all enjoy listening to our conversation. You've called yourself, I think, an environmental social scientist. You've said that to me. No, you've never said that to me. No, I, thought, I do not identify as an environmental You do not identify. I, I, in my mind, we had bonded over this because that's what I've been calling myself for like a year and a half. <laughs> we, I thought we were joking about it. You thought so, we were joking about it the whole time? <laughs> I okay. think, look, I know there are a lot of people who call themselves environmental social scientists out there, and that doesn't bother me at all. Uh-huh. Um, uh, it's like a nice broad grouping, but it does worry me um, for those people when they try to enter the academy that the traditional big universities don't understand what they're doing because they don't find it uh, well, that's fair. specific enough in terms of the discipline. And I see those people sometimes suffer on selection committees because when someone asks them what is their home discipline, they can't actually answer the question. Some of that would depend on the career stage, though. A little, Yeah, I mean, fair enough. There, you know, there was a discussion among, you know, former students of Lynn Ostrom's, right? Because she was, you could call her an environmental social scientist. Technically, she, she was a political scientist. But like a lot of us actually struggle with how to actually kind of box ourselves. Like, who are we, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And actually, so I found a YouTube video of you talking about your 2017 PNAS paper, right? Evolving really? polycentric, 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 ugh, evolving polycentric governance of the Great Barrier Reef. So I, I was looking at that again. I'm sorry. I've never seen that video. You haven't? No, you're I don't in it. Oh right! Wow. Yeah. Well, and so I, I had seen the paper before too, and in it you talk a, a couple times about what political scientists do or think. So you refer to yeah. regime drift as as something that political scientists think about. So then the question is: Okay, so you're not apparently you're not an environmental socialist. Well. You don't like the term, maybe in some you actually... Yeah, I'm happy. So I've been, I call myself a political geographer. So I'm interested basically in the connections between political science, human geography, and ecology. That's where I sit. Got it. Those three disciplines connect. So that, so that term does not have the same problem as environmental social scientists when people kind of... Well, people know what that means, political geographer? They do, because it is actually an accepted sub-discipline of both political science and human geography. Of both. Um, it's a journal. Um, it's been around for a long time. Like most of the work in political geography has been about um, transnational, like cross-border issues. Okay, so I'm just displaying my uh, like, ignorance here. Yeah, so like water um, watersheds that cross like the US and the Mexico border. Okay. Um, so it's like basically understanding how politics play out in space. Okay. So because um, so a lot of traditional political science is actually sort of aspatial it sure. doesn't account for scale. So that's Almost like oddly so sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, sorry, but having said that, I've called, I call myself a political geographer because I just need to call myself something. And when you're on the job market or you're talking to a disciplinary purist, you need to have something to say. Yes. I have been called by other people against my will, an environmental social scientist, a political economist, a political scientist, a planner and a political ecologist. And you reject all those things. Political ecologists, well... Well, I don't reject them, but I just don't identify as them. I just think it's interesting that that's what other people see. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're trying to make sense of you. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. And they usually try and make sense of you according to what they know, because that's what everyone does. So. That's what everyone does, yeah. yeah. Wait, so do you got your PhD from the University of Queensland? Yes. Do I have In that right? Studies? In environmental studies. Yeah. That sounds a little bit like environmental social happens. science. Sorry, sorry, squint. sorry. Sorry, I just misheard what you said. I got my Bachelor of Science in Environmental Studies. Got it. 
that was my undergraduate degree. Then I did honours in geography and planning. And then I did my PhD in political geography. And oh, so you, you have, okay, so you've earned yeah. like the, the formal right to call yourself a political geographer. Yes. Okay. I think for early career researchers, I don't think you need to earn the right. I think you just need to declare it. But why couldn't we say the same thing about environmental social science then, right? Like why well, couldn't someone just want. like come out confidently? Well, you can if you want. That's fine. I'm just saying that I don't like it for me. Fair enough. Okay. So political geographer has worked for you. Like when you were an early yeah. career researcher, like it, it made yeah. sense and it, it made you legible enough to other people. Yeah, exactly. It's all about legibility. Yeah. Like James Scott yeah. style. Yeah. And, and um, carving out a niche. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, particularly, so this is not about research, but this is about your broader, one's broader career in a university um, and being on the job market and carving out a niche in terms of, uh, being known for something. Environmental social science sometimes sounds way too broad. It's yep. nice to have a niche. Yeah, I played around with calling myself an environmental anthropologist for like six months. I like that. Yeah, I kind of liked it too. But I mean, I think environmental anthropology is, is the people that I've talked to who call themselves that are actually cultural mm-hmm. anthropologists who study the environment. Yeah, so that means you've got a niche because you've got something that's different to what they do. Well, I'm mm-hmm. not a cultural that's anthropologist. Not- so say right. other, so say actual cultural anthropologists, right? Like to, to, I mean, this is, I think this is the challenge we're saying, right? Is it like, if I'm talking to an economist, I could call myself a political scientist, but if I'm talking to an actual political scientist, I can't call myself that because they'll, they'll, they'll not like it. <laughs> I guess so. So but do you, at yeah. some point you just have to assert yourself. So Fair I have enough. another colleague, I have another colleague who is, how would you describe him? His background is in anthropology, but he does something that anthropologists hate, which is like quantitative social science. Yeah. Um, in the early days, that was really hard for him to be accepted as an anthropologist. And I don't know whether it was really the group of anthropologists who didn't accept him or whether it's his own self-identification with the group. Right. But now, it actually, in later in his career, it actually really works for him because he stands out from the pack. Sure. So it's like that's his niche. That's his brand. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. And so you're at the Arc Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies yes. in Australia. And so how does that work with like this disciplinary identity that you have? Is it easier okay. to kind of be more a little bit loosey-goosey with your identity at like an interdisciplinary research center? Because you're not in like a department of political science, et cetera. So, so how did yeah, that fit work for you when you first got the job and now? Well, when I first graduated with my PhD, I did actually get a tenure-track position in a political science department, mm-hmm. okay. um, which was really um, exciting for me because, uh, like you said, I didn't really fit in any disciplinary box and so right. to be accepted by the political scientists as one of them was actually really meaningful. Uh, but I didn't, um, I was very different to the rest of them. For instance, I spent a lot of time in the field uh, doing interviews and um, participant observation and things like that. And most of the political scientists I worked with were, you know, like studying voting patterns uh, or writing political theory. So they found me very different. Um, But having said that, in that particular school I was in, it was um, in the early 2000s and we had a quite well-known Masters of Public Administration program which attracted a lot of international students from all over the world who wanted to study um, decentralisation reforms in their own countries, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly around environmental decentralisation. So it was really exciting to work with all of those students um, Mm -hmm. and supervise their master's projects. So that that department was more about the students than the staff. Uh, Then I moved to a geography department. Uh, which was the name of it at the time was Geography Planning and Environmental Management. I wanted to move to a more research-intensive university and I wanted to move closer to my family because I had children. Okay. I moved to the University of Queensland and took a job in the geography department um, okay. where I taught in courses in geography, planning and environmental management. And that's when people started calling you a planner? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but right. basically what I was studying was the political geography of land use planning. Okay. So how land, use, how land use planning 
occurs um, as a result of politics and how those politics interact across space and scale. Okay. Um, but that that was um, so that was exciting that place because there were a lot of landscape ecologists in that department, mm-hmm. and the interests that I have in space and scale are shared with landscape ecologists. They approach it very differently, but we're interested in the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it was exciting uh, for that reason. So that's when I started interacting much more deeply with ecologists. But having said that, it wasn't a very interdisciplinary department. Even though the department was designed to be interdisciplinary, there were mm-hmm. a lot of challenges. So there were a lot of silos in that department. There were a lot of arguments about quantitative versus qualitative, positives versus constructivist. Are there lessons we can draw from that experience? Is it the normal mix of kind of mutual dismissiveness and strong personalities? Or Yeah, I think. I think so. I think um, it's really hard to be truly interdisciplinary as a department. Yep. Um, it's really easy to slip down a slippery slope of silos and, you know, passive-aggressive behaviour, particularly in a constrained funding environment that drives a lot of okay. anti-interdisciplinary behaviour. Because um, the the funding sources have categories so you need to slot yourself into one of those categories or what well yes and but also when the whole pool shrinks people mm, start okay. you know it's like game of thrones yeah they get feisty. <laughs> okay yeah, yeah um, i mean it's something i've been interested in throughout like this podcast honestly we've been talking to a lot of people about their attempts to be interdisciplinary and we inevitably talk about what the challenges are but it's in some ways we kind of all know what the challenges are and so it's 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 helpful to try to understand or explore like what the potentials are. Like, how do we actually meet these challenges? How do we actually get people in a room together and have them? I mean, you're right. Cause we've all heard the same stories. Like an ecologist walks up to a social scientist and says, Hey, do you just tell stories and talk about your feelings? And <laughs> the social scientist says, well, do you only care about experiments without generalizability in real world context? And we can like throw out those, right. Yeah, yeah. Like those are shop worn narratives. Yeah. But then, like, I'm amazed, right? Like, I could, well, I can dismiss those, but then you still hear them sometimes. Yeah, you hear them all the time. Um, but I think I've become, you know, I've sat in so many workshops run by modelers who, in the early days, they I, they would invite me along as the token environmental social scientist. Mm-hmm. And they'd expect me to sort of turn up with, like, a large-end social science data set in my handbag that they could just plug into their models. Right. And when I didn't turn up like that and I was criticising the underpinnings of their models and the assumptions. They must they have were, loved that. No, no they did not. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and, didn't, um, didn't Tiffany, you and I meet at a modelling workshop? Yes, we did. Uh, uh-oh, okay. It was a different kind of workshop. So uh-huh. that was like 10 years ago. People realised that we needed, people were starting to realise that uh, uh, biophysical science couldn't solve all of these environmental problems and a lot of the solutions had to be social and institutional, but they didn't still, they couldn't work out how to get to them, I think. They knew they had to invite people to these workshops and start talking about it, but, um, you know, in the early days, everyone was, like, arguing over definitions, methods. I think things have changed a lot in the last 10 years. For the good, okay. Uh, but I've, I've also become better at picking and choosing. So I can immediately, I can smell a, a anti-social science. Okay, you've got better um, radar for that. Bottle a mile away. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, it's true though. I mean, p- who gets in the room, it matters as much as anything else, right? That selection yeah, process. Yeah. Mm. Um, okay. So back to the, the, where you work now. Yeah. Okay. So I got tenure at that second place too. Okay. Um, but it was a huge teaching and admin load and not much time for research in a constrained funding environment. So okay. I was starting to look around. The promises of working in an interdisciplinary research intensive department weren't you know, coming to fruition coming to fru- like yeah, I thought okay. they would. And then this job came up at JCU, James Cook University, in the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. Um, so I should say all of my work up until then was like in terrestrial, uh, remote and rural terrestrial regions. I had not worked on coastal or marine regions at all. Okay, you were talking to farmers until then? or Yeah, pretty much. Farmers. Okay rural local governments, okay. um, you know, the forestry industry, mining. I did a lot of work on mining, coal gas. Um, and so this work, this job came up and it was social science research leader, so research only in a really well-known, well-funded institute uh, which had just 
been granted a second round of funding for seven years and um, at the university, which is like number one in the world for marine biology and number two in the world for tropical ecology or something like that. So it was really exciting. Not bad. Uh, job. And, you know, it's very rare to find a research only position in the social sciences at that level. Yeah. So I jumped. So um, we moved all of our family up here and I was a little worried about how to develop a social science research program in this centre, given the strength of the biologists and the geneticists. Mm-hmm. Um, but this centre is run so well uh, and it is so uh, supportive of interdisciplinary work, including deep qualitative work, that there has actually been no problems. It's actually been amazing and really fun. That's awesome. So how many years has yeah. it been? Five years. All right. Yeah. So, so far, I'm so not good. going anywhere. I love it. You're staying in Townsville. Yeah. It's very hot. <laughs> I hear there are sharks or alligators or something. Or sharks, all of it. sharks, crocodiles, um, and today it's 36 degrees. The minimum last night was 28 degrees. Mm-hmm. I've been warned against, I've wanted to come visit y'all, but I've been warned against coming, what, in our winter because it's just so apparently yeah. hot there. You need to come between April and October. I mean, you can come otherwise. It'll be very productive work-wise because you'll just want to spend all the time in the air conditioning. Right. Uh, but you might get to see the landscape because it's yeah. just so hot. Okay. All right. So there's some terms that we have to talk about. Okay. Some some new like conceptual characters we got to introduce here. Okay. You know, I think chief among them is this this fellow named Polycentricity. I'm surprised we haven't I we haven't mentioned it earlier. You know, I was looking back at your your PNAS paper, right? So this paper on this overtime, as you say, critical case study. Yeah. longitudinal case study of the Great Barrier Reef. You know, I, I, I looked at it again today and I loved it. I think one of the main challenges that we face actually in, let's say, environmental social science, or I guess political geography, is, you know, we've got all these case studies in, or in the commons literature, right? So yeah. we've got all these case studies. We don't, we kind of under leverage the knowledge that people learn about one particular place. And we, we kind of under, and in some ways we undergeneralize maybe ironically because we have such a strong discourse about the dangers of of overgeneralizing in terms of panaceas and all that stuff because i feel like i've read a fair number of case studies let's you know in the commons literature etc and they just feel kind of understructured like i like them i have i share all the values that are embodied in a case study like i want to go to a place i understand that like we need to worry about context i don't want to just shove everything into aggression model (laughs) <laughs> right. I don't think that P values are the truth. Like I, I'm yeah. on board with all that stuff. Yeah. And then I look at a case study and you know, there's like a paragraph of methods and they kind of boil down to, well, we went somewhere and we did some things. Yeah. And then they kind of talk to you about what they found. And what I liked about the case study that you were talking about is there was so much more than that. It was, it really like embodied what I think a standard case study in whatever field we're talking about should feel like there's, there's both a narrative quality, but then there are these typologies that you kind of engage with. And there's there, those typologies seem to relate to each other. There's overtime analysis. You talk about doing process tracing. And honestly, in the literature that I've looked at that talks about process tracing, that has also felt a little underformalized to me. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And so you've got these different graphs and, you know, I don't think we have the space to like dive into the specifics of this paper, but I'm really interested at least engaging with its identity as a case study and how we can, you know, the lessons that you learned from doing it um, that other people I think could learn from and we could learn as a community about how to do case studies better. Yeah. And of course there's the whole like polycentricity hook, which we also want to get into. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and you mentioned, um, you know, in this YouTube video, actually, that I found that this is like a critical case study. Yeah. Which I found really interesting. And you described it in a way that I hadn't heard before as a, a case, a critical case study is a case study that we actually can generalize from. Because in the, in the orthodox discourse, the, the, what we're supposed to not like case studies because you cannot generalize from them. Yeah, exactly. But the human but that's brain... Wrong. Can, you, that's well, wrong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is so so wrong <laughs> okay I, I like let me have it like so i think the human brain wants to generalize from them we're all convinced by a good story but then i'm supposed you know but then this is anecdotal etc so you know okay, how do we so convince someone who's read like the paradigmatic literature on quantitative social inference etc 
Yeah. I think the large N data brat pack has got a lot to answer for. Oh, okay. So we're, <laughs> we're fighting words right away. Okay. <laughs> so um, if you can't generalise from a single case study, then you're basically uh, ignoring half of the social sciences. For starters. Okay. So the trick to generalising from a single case is to generalise to theory. You're not generalising across cases. You're taking a theoretical framework, testing it, and then speaking back to that theoretical framework about how your critical case informs has that. changed, yeah, informed, changed your understanding and informs that framework. Um, so you can't approach a, case, a critical case or any case, in my opinion, theory-free. Yeah. Um, and then you have to um, show how it develops new theory. Do you think some people disagree with you? I mean, I think I really like what you're saying. When I've tried to make sense of what it means to do a case study, I think the strength has been to really dig into its relationship to a particular theory, whether it's something about polycentricity or the resource curse, what have you, yeah. and look at what, you know, what are the observational implications of this theory? There's probably a bunch of them. And how does this one particular case relate to the that suite of like predictions but then i mean there is you know you call it like the the, the quantitative brat pack is what we're calling them we're just we're gonna we're gonna make a lot of enemies in this them, interview. i call them the large n data brat, brat pack okay <laughs> and so the other side quote unquote and honestly i think part of the challenge here and you know we study like human cooperation so it's funny that like so much of our scientific scientific discourse i think reflects the same social dynamics right as you were saying right earlier before we started recording there's like the quantitative folks and the qualitative folks yeah and they all just kind of like shout at each other all the time so that yeah. Like, so yeah in that paper i actually so i it's a mostly a qualitative study but i actually draw on a lot of quantitative data as well right okay validate to validate the qualitative analysis the inferences um, so, that you're making yeah, yeah yeah and i don't think that it's either or like i think all of those people working with large data sets trying to understand uh, things quantitatively are doing really interesting work. And I think all of the people doing the critical qualitative case studies are also doing really interesting work, but a lot of them are not drawing it together. Right. And that's where the really interesting things should be happening um, going forward. I agree. And so that's what I tried to do in that paper. I tried to show how it's possible to mix methods um, speak to theory, um, apply it to a critical case. Yeah, um, I, I could see other people trying to do it, but not pulling it off. And I just wanted to see whether I could do it. I was yeah. in the luxurious position of being able to spend two two years full time working on that project. I mean, it's a solo author paper, right? Yes, it's just you. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. you read it; and it seems like a, a lot of work went into that. Really, it was a huge amount of work. But you know, one of the things I didn't mention before was when. I took this job at JCU in the Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. One of the most exciting things was to be able to come up to this amazing land use conflict that was playing out on the doorstep, which is, you know, the Great Barrier Reef. Right. Like it's just such a hot topic at the moment. Um, right. And, like and in you're reality, right there. Yeah. yeah, and it's hot. Like it's, you know, the, the climate change is really impacting. It's like a political hot potato um, on a global scale, like it's just really exciting to be able to work on that project, on that on that ecosystem. Right. So that that excited me, and then I realised at the same time I was um, reading all of this sort of resilience literature, um, where uh, polycentricity was being prescribed as a solution to complex environmental problems, and it was just like a really sort of offhand prescription. It was like you know principle ten. Everything has to be polycentric. So this and, is some, yeah, yeah. And I was like, what? Like, what What on earth? You know, I can see where people get that from and why they think it's attractive as a normative solution. But I, we just haven't even begun to understand polycentric systems. I mean, this um, has been, my, yeah, go ahead. By, yeah, sorry, keep going. No, I, I just, what you're saying like strongly resonates with me, right? I think this is maybe why we got along, even though we met at a modeling meeting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, I've struggled with some of the literature on resilience as well. Like, I really like it. You know, there's these seminal pieces that talk about how we need to move away from command and control. We need to worry more about adaptability as opposed to optimality, et cetera. And this really speaks strongly to, I think, a lot of us. And then there's just a lot of papers that feel very conceptual, 
And kind of ironically, right, they're particularly led by Lynn. Um, we have this kind of anti-panacea mentality where it's like, you know, you can't, it's not just ITQs. It's not just cap and trade. It's not just MPAs, whatever it is. And we need to figure out what works when and how. I mean, you know, that was essentially Lynn's research project. But then, I, you know, some of the literature on polycentricity, and it's not just polycentricity, it's, it's adaptive management, it's holistic management, it's adaptive co-management, it's adaptive polycentric multi-level co-management. You know, you could... It's, <laughs> it's it become goes, jargon. Yeah. And so I've yeah. really struggled with this too, because it felt like I would read these things and there would be, as you, exactly as you said, there are these kind of offhanded comments that felt kind of panacea-y, right? So you'd have... <laughs> The traditional critique of these other panaceas is they were accompanied by like a just so story, right? So in ITQs, you know, there's this whole, the mythology of market efficiency, the, the, the discourse does not emphasize externalities or disproportionate wealth accumulation, which of course, like we've seen in, in the ITQ sphere. And it felt like the discourse about polycentricity was similar. Yeah. You know, we need to get away from command and control. We need to go away from monocentric systems. Some of the discourse honestly feels a little similar to me that, to the discourse about like decentralization, frankly. Yeah, exactly. It's like decentralization 2.0. 2.0, right. And, and there's some, been some, you know, like your work has been, has I think advanced us beyond that. Um, there's been some good work from Rebecca Gruby, who I've mentioned before mm -hmm. in this podcast, who's really just asked the question like, okay, what do we mean by this? Yeah. How can we actually make this do work for us scientifically and not have it be like the next, you know, kind of rallying cry for the, 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 for the scientific community that like, as long yeah, as we're all one, on board. Yeah, go ahead. One of the things that worries me about polycentricity is it's really complicated. And if you can't see it properly, all sorts of bad things can happen in the name of polycentricity. Right. So that's what led me into looking at power dynamics. Right. And polycentricity and the, what we can see and what we can't see because we spend a lot of time. Also, these other papers, so there was this resilience literature which is prescribing polycentricity as a principle and then there was this other literature which was sort of more coming out of the networks, networked governance um, space, which was um, saying, well, we can understand polycentricity by looking at how networks are structured um, and that's while they've produced very interesting diagrams and pictures of the formal structures of these polycentric systems, we're not actually seeing what's happening within them and behind them, right? through them. And that's what, so that's sort of, I tried to get at the, the power dynamics in that PNAS paper for the Great Barrier Reef, but then I wrote two other papers after that um, where I actually tried to look at a different types of power within those systems and how we might be able to begin to apprehend them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's one of my favorite things that you did in the paper. You have that initial diagram where you've got the three different stages of like polycentricity and it reminded me of, so we had a former guest on this podcast who we also met at the, at the this was a CISIC modeling group that's actually still going on. Uh, yeah. We interviewed Mark Lubell and he's got oh, this yeah. blog post about polycentricity. Yeah, that's uh, a great post. Well, it, yeah. And what I remember it saying is, uh, isn't kind of everything polycentric is like, do we have a monocentric system? And if everything's polycentric, how do you have a theory about something that's everywhere? Exactly. Right? And that's like, the paper that we're working on now um, as part of the C-Sync project that you're involved in. Yes. Well, it's like <laughs> once you've explained everything, you've kind of circled around to explaining nothing. Yeah, exactly. So did you have that kind of idea in your mind when you're writing this paper that we need to really make clear like what we mean empirically by polycentricity because in some ways everything has multiple centers of decision making yeah. there's overlapping jurisdictions pretty much everywhere to some extent yeah yeah and so i um, you have to maybe go back to the ostrom definition which is that it's self-organizing mm -hmm. so you can have fragmented systems which have all those characteristics you just described yeah um, but they're not necessarily talking to each other in right. sort of self-organized fashion. So how do we understand this self-organization? Um, like and is it all good? Yeah. Pardon? Sorry, like this, like it's coherent. Like there's these yeah. things are actually yeah. how communicating. Is it, how is it working together or not? And so that's the work that we're doing now. We're looking at, you know, you can actually see hierarchies like monocentric systems intertwined through polycentric systems. How do right. we understand that? What does that tell us about power dynamics and the effectiveness of the system? Yeah. So it makes me want to ask you another question and I want to ask it, but also like, I want to 
have you give me a certain answer. I mentioned that like this is really extraordinary case study that you did. And, you know, you kind of typologize different aspects of a polycentric order. And what it makes me think about is the need for a database that systematically documents, you know, and this probably doesn't surprise you to hear me say this, right? <laughs> but like, you know, how do we go forward from this one case study? How do we accumulate evidence about polycentricity over time? And in my mind, I don't know how we do that very well without having some kind of database that documents like, okay, this system had this type of regime drift or like this type of fragmented polycentricity versus this other one. Yeah. Can we actually, yeah. Do we have to do that across cases? So do we not, um, well, I mean, why would we not well, want to? Well, well, because, well, I think it's very difficult to compare across context uh, in this particular case. And I think maybe um, to achieve the same outcome, we could just keep drilling down into one system. So that case is so rich. Right. And we barely scraped the surface. Right. But I mean, um, because of. And other, the, maybe yeah. like a handful of critical cases. Like, I'm not just saying we should all go and study the GBR. Right. But yeah, some other really classic cases too in the US and elsewhere where there's already been um, a certain level of work done, which would enable us to drill down even further into those polycentric systems. So, do you think that. Part of what we need to do to move forward, because that's, I mean, something that we always need to talk about in these talks is, you know, what's next? Do you think that what's missing is less intercase comparability and more a lack of rigorously conducted critical cases? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I don't think the other goal is um, unimportant. I just think to get at this question of polycentricity, this is how possibly the only way we can do it. Right. Although there are some people doing some interesting stuff with social network analysis across cases in international relations, and they could be producing something similar that I'm not aware of yet. Right. Okay. Um, but, but I do worry that it, a lot of that social network stuff is producing these structural fingerprints right. of polycentric systems rather than what's going on behind them. And you, I think you see that in that paper. You talk a lot about kind of, I'm not sure if you'd agree with this interpretation, but like the formal versus the informal, like the formal structures that get layered on, as you say, versus like what's really kind of actually happening behind the scenes, maybe strategically. Yeah. Well, if you, I don't know whether you saw the supplementary section and I feel like I need to actually publish another paper just based on the supplementary section. So in the supplementary section, um, we divide it into visible and invisible. Okay. Rather than formal and informal, because mm -hmm. there are lots of, formal things that happened to change the system um, that weren't very visible, but they were still formal. Okay. So, for instance, the relationship between the minister and the CEO of the board, like that's a formal relationship, but no one was really looking at it because no one thought it was important. Okay. Would you say that formality correlates with visibility? Yes and no. Oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> um, so a lot of formal arrangements within a system are visible, but there are also a lot that are not. Right. Like, the, so we like what you tend, mentioned. Yeah. So we, we tend to look at the big exciting policy announcement and the big exciting structure that's been set up to solve a policy problem, but we don't then look at the next level down, like, for instance, how the second person in charge talks to the organisation between them or right. something like that. You know, okay. And that actually I've discovered through doing years of interviews that, um, you know, there's no point interviewing a politician about environmental governance because they'll just tell you what you want to hear and they quite often don't know what's going on anyway. But if you interview the person second or third in charge, you get an amazingly rich data set about what's actually going on in the system. That's a quite a methodological so, nugget. Okay. Yeah, you, you, the, um, and that, that's the sort of the approach that I applied in terms of working out who I was going to interview for that project to understand how that system was working. Okay. So in this other more recent paper that you sent me, the one about kind of decarbonization, oh, yeah. I felt like I noticed a similar theme to some of what we're talking about now is, and to me, it, it, it reminds me of the question, like, what are the limits of the case? Like, what is a case? How do we bound a case? More or less, right? That's supposed to be one of the necessary decisions for doing a case study. It's like step one or two, right? And yet, like in the era, right, in the era of telecoupling and the Anthropocene, which is another concept I want to talk to you about, by the way, where everything's connected, 
you know, and that's really like, I feel like a lot of the discussion in your paper embodies this fact that we can't just think about local natural resource management, which I really liked as a critique of some of the approach of the commons, right? Where we think about local, local, local level collective action problems. We don't think about these larger scale issues. Yeah. But then how much violence does that do to the definition of the case? Like how much? Well, yeah. so um, I disagree with banding the case. As a necessary step. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I've been having this argument with I don't know whether I can describe these people as a coherent this group of people as a coherent group, but I've been having this argument with people ever since I did my PhD. So to me, to understand the system, you need to understand what's impacting the system and then work back from there. You don't just draw a boundary around a watershed or a forest or whatever according to the way the government understands that boundary for jurisdictional or administrative purposes. Right. You need to have some system that you're going to use as a starting point and then you start looking at what's impacting the system and work out from there. It can take you all the way to, you know, Paris and the United Nations. Right. And then, but you, I know, I'm sure someone has said this to you during these discussions with this amorphous group that you're semi-identifying <laughs> is... You got to stop somewhere, right? So if you think, if you think, yeah. okay, what's affecting the system? But in you know, in modern days, yeah. uh, so everything's way affecting you, the system. Yeah, the way you work to uh, work out how to um, stop somewhere is when you realize that you've got saturation. Ah, that's a term I've heard from qualitative researchers recently. Yeah, so saturation is when you start hearing the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. and you realize you're not going to learn anything new. Right. Diminishing marginal returns to additional interviews, as maybe an yeah, economist exactly. would say. Exactly. And there's been quite a few papers, really good papers I can direct you to on that if you want. I'd love to, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, but the bounding of the system is a real constraint, I think, to moving forward. Okay. What I just suggested as a way to bound it is a methodological solution. Right. Yeah. So I don't know whether bounding it by drawing a line around it is a methodological solution or not. <laughs> I mean, I think it's something that people do. Yeah. Well, I think you've got to start with a a, a, a vague idea of what you think the boundary might be as universally agreed upon by the interested parties. But even when you start interviewing those interested parties, you'll actually discover that they don't agree on where the boundary is. Right. So, you know, then where do you, for a qualitative case study researcher who's trying to pin reality to the page, you know, you can't. Oh, that's well put. It's a boundary. Okay. So all okay, all boundaries are fuzzy, and we need to we need to proceed until saturation. Yeah, got it. No, that makes sense. It's like a kind of operating principle. I mean, I've struggled with that in like in fieldwork, though, right? There, it is challenging. Like sometimes you just hear sometimes very conflicting things, and you're hearing them from strategically motivated actors. And at least in the in the methodological education I received, there, that was not talked about that much, right? It's like what's you do a power estimate to make sure you're getting like enough n in your large n, and like that's that's enough. But then what do you do when like a bureaucrat says this, and then a natural resource user says no, it's the opposite of that, and this other person's lying to you because of these reasons? Uh, yeah. You know, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yes, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, so at least one or two other things I'd love to talk to you about. I don't know how much time we have. Um, I've got like maybe 15 minutes. Oh, perfect. So that's at least enough time to talk to you about this other keyword, the Anthropocene or the Anthropocene. I don't don't know which one's correct, actually. I'll be honest, like I've not used that word in my work, Not not as a principle. I'm not against using it. But it's just been interesting to kind of watch it. It's now, I think, you see it pretty much it's unusual to not see it in an abstract, right? So we have, here's another thing. Uh, I feel like a lot of papers, and I don't have yours in mind necessarily, or mm-hmm. I, certainly, I certainly have some of mine in mind, actually, when I say this. We have like this kind of boilerplate one page or two pages that basically says real, things are really complicated, things are really hard, something blah, 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 complexity. Yeah. Maybe some people say like the word nonlinearity that feels good and like thresholds and multi-scale multi-scale, you know, interplay is a big one linkage something. Yeah. And, but and you should just, develop a software. We can just pump out these papers according to this recipe. Well, <laughs> I just don't understand why we, a part of me would love it. If we could just all agree, at least on a journal by journal basis to just say, let's just all agree that there's a template online 
and you point to that and that says we we agree with this perspective and this is the perspective we have yeah. it's the resilience perspective or something right which is like pretty similar to kind of what i was saying yeah and for my method section i just want to um, be able to say based on a true story <laughs> <laughs> see the supplementary oh, material for more information yeah <laughs> But so, no, I agree with you. Every paper starts off with the same recipe and it is starting to get a bit banal. And and now I feel like we now see the word Anthropocene in there. And it basically yeah. says in the era of the Anthropocene. And in my mind, yeah. I think we haven't learned like the day before that term became popular and the day after no discovery was made. I understand that it's an important. Well, actually, so I'm. I'm mm, uh, for people here in working in this centre, the uh, mass coral bleaching that occurred over a four-year period in Australia and around the world from 2014 to 2017 was actually shocking. And it was like evidence, all of a right. sudden, this like stark evidence of the Anthropocene. But do we need the word Anthropocene to make that realization? Because I feel like there had been a pretty strong discourse in many parts of the world about how bad things were getting before yeah, this term was popular. Yeah, I think it just became a rallying. Rallying cry. Cry, yeah. Yeah. I think it was the Rockstrom paper that really said it, wasn't it? Was it the Rockstrom paper? One of those papers, there was some seminal paper which gets cited in every first paragraph of every paper. Right. So now it's, you know, it, it, it's in order to signal again to like the community, you know. We, the planetary all, boundaries paper maybe I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I have, it's, I think it's just an interesting dynamic of like the sociology of science that now, because again, like we knew about acid rain, we, you know, climate change was, was well known before like this became a popular scientific term. So I think the reason like I've, this particular paper, though, what we were trying to, one of the main points of the paper is that, and I still believe this, the commons and collective action literature doesn't really deal with climate change. Mm. A lot of it deals with resource extraction problems, like overfishing, um, forestry and so forth. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really deal with climate change, partly because of the scale issue. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's what we were trying to do with this paper was say, hey, um, we need to think about new governance models um, for climate change because the current governance models, which are, you know, very much about focusing on resource-dependent peoples at the regional ecosystem scale, is not working anymore. These are vulnerable people. They're not actually causing a lot of these problems. They're actually recipients of these problems. Right, now. yeah. Okay. Um, and so that's what we we're trying to get at there, and I think that's what we tried to capture in the title. I don't know whether we did. Well, you know, and again, like I really like the paper, the, the 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 connection it makes to the need to kind of decarbonize, I think is really healthy and important. I was more thinking about, you know, just the phenomenon of suddenly seeing a term kind of pop up, you know, kind of as a very like highly contagious or sticky term. It's just interesting yeah, to kind of totally. watch it. Totally. It's, it's almost, it has become jargon. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but, you know, Here's a question is, so in that more recent paper, you know, I, I interpreted you all to be arguing for the need to kind of um, look at a larger scale spatially, temporally and think about, I don't remember if you use this term or not, but I would say underlying drivers of a lot of these local to regional problems. Yeah. And when you do that, it's hard not to think about the need to kind of decarbonize our economy writ large. Yeah. And Which, I'm not yeah. saying that you can't achieve decarbonization at the local collective action level in fact you can and you right. should and it's actually a really cool thing to do and i wish more people were studying it right um you know the green new deal like that is ripe for a right. collective action right Commons yeah kind of interrogation but no one as far as i know is doing that and if they are i'd love to know who they are yeah I mean, it seems to be that just there are, you know, I'm aware of other research communities that talk about these things, you know, they talk about transitions management. There's a literature on like carbon lock-in, which I, I totally agree with you that we're kind of under leveraging some of these key concepts that we know are important most places. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So moving forward, what are things that excite you? What are think you, what do you think are there challenges that you want to kind of meet individually or that you kind of want to work with other people to meet collectively? 
do you, are you interested in continuing to work in the GBR? Is that, do you see it as like a long-term investment on your part? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, but I am actually uh, moving out to other critical cases. Okay. So one of the interesting things in that PNAS paper, I don't know whether you picked up on it, it was probably just one sentence, was the role of the World Heritage Committee uh, in um, effectively rescaling the problem and okay. making it a global problem, not just a regional or national problem. Um, and so there's multiple other critical cases within the World Heritage System um, which um, are comparable. So, oh, you use the C word, comparable. Yes. So you want to make comparisons. Well, I'm not sure. At the moment, what I'm doing is actually I've, I've set up a huge database. You're like this. Okay. Well, this, we talked about this, actually. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. yeah. And um, we were interrogating the database at the moment to see whether it's possible and what. Okay. So the, the database already exists. Um, we're sort of reworking it to try and see whether it's able to be manipulated to answer the questions that we want to be asked want to ask we're not sure whether it is possible but we're going to try that's exciting so that's one thing and that will be you know looking at understanding polycentricity in the face of rapid change so okay that's what we're trying to get at there um then the other thing that i'm really interested in is you know these different types of power particularly pragmatic power like the power of local level bureaucrats or the, that person who's second in charge, not first in charge, what kind of discretionary power they have and how they use it. Sure. Um, and also framing power, which is the power of different groups like lobby groups or other influential groups to actually change how society understands the nature of the problem. Sure. I'm interested in working out how to get at those problems within polycentric system. I would imagine that these type of actors, the second in command, the local bureaucrats, actually have substantial discretionary power a lot of the time. They do. And in countries like Australia and the US, it seems to be on the increase. Um, It also seems to be incredibly captured by powerful outside interests. Okay. There's been some really interesting papers coming out of political science recently. Um, Access to Congress, US Congress, um, seems to be occurring through these high-level bureaucrats. Okay. um, Who who are actually controlling the debate. Uh, Okay. All right. And so you're all, you're going to be sticking with the polycentricity framing for a little while. Uh, well, I think there's just still so much um, so much more material to interrogate there. We just really don't. We're really just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding polycentric systems. Sure. Um, and there's so many great cases now. The other thing that's going on for someone like me is that we're now in the um, golden era of archival research. Everything is being archived online. So you can go through like, you know, 40 years of royal commissions, inquiries, legislation, minutes, policy documents, grey literature, whatever, um, in a way that wasn't even possible just 10 years ago to build a story and to build a narrative to understand where we've come from and where we possibly could go. Yeah. It's really, really cool. I mean, you you did a lot of that for your GBR paper, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so now, you know, those cases, other world heritage cases in other parts of the world, I couldn't have done that 10 years ago, but now right. I can. That's exciting. Yeah, it's super exciting. Okay. Yeah, the power, power thing is hard. It's one of these things that's kind of everywhere and because it's so ubiquitous, it makes it kind of even more difficult to get a hold of. And, and I don't want to say measure, although it is kind of how, it is something I think about. Yeah. So how do you tell when someone has power over someone else? And the answer is kind of like, well, you just know when you see it, (laughs) right? But that's like not a very satisfying answer methodologically. The other thing that I'm really interested in is political will. So I'm very sick of reading papers where the last paragraph says, well, it was all well and good, um, except the whole thing fell over due to a lack of political will. Right. And um, I think, well, actually, what is political will? How do we understand it? Can we create it? Can we measure it? Um, right. And that's, it's actually one of those, you know, phrases that slips off the tongue. Right. But there's something there that we need to understand. If, you know, if we have a, a normative desire to help environments and societies, then we have to know how to understand the political will. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like almost, it's not quite a panacea, but it's like, oh, if we only had the political will, everything else would be fine. Well, it's like, okay, yeah. we should unpack that a little bit if that's so, that, yeah, if it's that should. important. 
totally we totally should and we're not we're actually like it becomes like a postscript in every article right driving crazy (laughs) (laughs) so is that maybe like the answer we were talking before i started recording about you know how do you as like mid-career or whatever either of us is like sustaining your interest etc when you have when you're kind of fortunate enough to have fewer obvious goalposts to motivate you so it sounds like one answer is to find things to be annoyed about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, oh, all these people are doing this. I got I to gotta work on it. Yeah. I think it does help. It's a great motivator. You yeah. get really passionate about correcting what you see as <laughs> a flaw in the system. Yeah. Um, and you, but there's a risk. You don't want to build up a straw man and then right. tear it down. Because then what have you really done, right? You've just... You've, you yeah. didn't need to do it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you, I think you need to work out um, what, you know, that what that little niggling thing is that's irritating you that you want to fix and see fixed in That's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. But you also need to think about how to do it productively and constructively because, you know, that's one of the holes that critical social science has fallen into. Uh, it tends to be quite destructive right. and neighbor-raising. Uh, and so we... I think yeah. we need to be, if we do want to go down the path of critical social science, which is really important in understanding like power dynamics and all that kind of stuff, we need to be careful that we're doing it in a um, constructive way so that the field can move forward, not just saying, well, it's all about power. Right. So there. That's perfect. I don't want to say, I thought we should just end the interview there. Cool. Okay. Well, good luck right. with, with your version of 36 degrees. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'll see you soon. See you, Tiffany. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, essnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on. Until next time.